1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask for your assistance as we approach your word. That you would use it to encourage, to strengthen, to convict and to admonish and to assist us that we might be more faithful to you. Lord, we recognize even as we've been, uh, we've repeatedly found throughout this book that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't cause ourselves to grow. You alone can change our hearts, but we know that you use your word and prayer and the church to help us to grow. And so we ask that you would, that you'd use this this message, this text, and the the whole of this worship service to grow us spiritually, that we might be more mature, more Christ-like as a result of our worshiping of you this afternoon. And I pray in particular that you would bless my brothers and sisters and myself by freeing us from the fear of others, of others' opinions, of others' judgments. And Lord, that you would free us from our sinful tendency to judgmentalism and having a critical spirit. Lord, that we'd be set free from the things of this world even as we read earlier in Colossians, that we'd have our hearts and minds set on things above. That we would live for you and not for what others think. I pray that you would use this text to accomplish that end. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this week, we celebrated Thanksgiving, which is a holiday that commemorates the uh, pilgrims' Uh, passing from England and coming to Plymouth in the New World. And it commemorates that feast that they enjoyed with the Indians who helped them in their crisis. And of the 102 original passengers that set sail uh, on the Mayflower, after the first winter, only 53 survived. So it begs us to ask this question, well, what was worth the risk? Why would anybody take such risks that, knowing, and it turned out to be a reality, that only half the people might survive? I mean, what what vacations would you go on if you knew half your family wouldn't make it? Or even what moves to other countries? Well, the answer is freedom, and in particular, religious freedom. And freedom is also one of the key themes of the gospel and one of the main joys of the gospel. And there are many ways that the gospel teaches us about our freedom that we've been given. It gives us freedom from the wrath of God. It gives us freedom from our slavery to sin. It gives us freedom from the curse of the law. And one that's often forgotten that really applies to these other freedoms that have been mentioned is it gives us freedom from the judgment of others. And it's not often recognized how judgment is associated with the gospel. But we see in Romans 2.16 that Paul himself says, On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, knowing that God will judge us, namely the secrets of men, is good news because we know That God in his omniscience and in his sovereignty will judge justly. He will judge us justly. 
and his judgments will be good. Moreover, we also know that every person who is in Christ will receive no condemnation. There will be no condemnation if you are a follower of Christ. And so that judgment is something we look forward to. And this is one of the applications of the gospel that I have, I have felt most personally, that I have been most personally encouraged by. Intellectually, I am encouraged to know, of course, that the wrath of God has been uh, removed and that I've been set free from the curse of the law and slavery to sin. But the truth that I think I, that is strength in my heart, it, it, particularly the lowest periods of my life that I can recall, is recognizing that I no longer have to fear anyone's judgment but Christ's. I no longer have to worry about what others think of me. We don't have to fear the judgment of others because the gospel teaches us that only God can faithfully judge our lives and our ministries. Only God can. And moreover, in the end, when all is said and done, his is the only judgment that's going to matter. So the whole world could be against you and have this opinion of you that carries throughout your whole life. But in the end, when all is said and done, everybody will see the truth because God will make it clear. And so only his judgment is what we need to be concerned about now. And it's this freedom that Paul addresses in this, six, in this section of 1 Corinthians. He makes three different points that really expose the foolishness of seeking to assess one of God's servants in their life and ministry. First of all, we should recognize God's servants' role and aim. And if we see that their role is to be servants and stewards, and that their aim is really just to be faithful in those roles, and then we recognize that the weakness and limitations we have as humans to make judgments of other people, we will then recognize also that only God can faithfully judge a person's life and ministry. And therefore, only God's judgment matters. That's, that's Paul's argument, essentially. So let's look, first of all, at our calling to recognize the role and aim of God's servants. Paul writes in verse 1, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And this goes without saying in any uh, course of life, if you want to assess a person in their faithfulness, you need to recognize what they're aiming at. What are they trying to achieve? What's the goal? And in the case of the Christian, Paul boils it down to three words. He illustrates it with servants and stewards, and then says their aim is faithfulness. So the first two illustrate their purpose, and the third sums up what success in those roles would be. And the first word, the first verb, I should say, that, he comes across, that, that we come across is, this is how one should regard us. And that verb, regard, is actually imperative. That is, it has the, the significance of a command. So Paul is not being suggestive, but he's saying this is how it should be. This is how every Christian should look at servants of God. Christians are to view themselves and others, and especially servants, or leaders I should say, as servants. The word he uses is the Greek word huperetes, and it refers to the lowest level of a slave. Literally, it's an under rower. It referred to the slave who was on the third tier of a galley that would never be noticed. They were used as manual labor and treated as machines. And over time, this word huperetes came to designate uh, anybody who is a subordinate or who is an assistant to another, one who served for the interests of another person. It was to illustrate the person moving the ship, but who remained unseen. They served only in the interests of the captain of the ship. And so a good servant is successful 
when he remains unnoticed, when he does his work, not for his own ends, but just faithfully attends the interests of his master. He wants his master to be noticed. And so this servant, this word servant emphasizes the minister's inconspicuousness or his lack of visibility. And this word steward that he uses really emphasizes their responsibility. The word for steward is oikonomos. And it's used many times in Scripture, and it refers to the steward or manager of a, of a household. He was the person in charge of a master's affairs while the master was gone. And he was given responsibility over everything in the house, similar to the role that Joseph had for Potiphar. We could maybe in contemporary times think of it as the role of the president's chief of staff. He's the one that filters through all the information that gets to the president. Or maybe even the prime minister's role to the queen of England. If you're familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord Denethar, the steward of Gondor, was overseeing the city of Gondor in place of the king while the king was gone. And of course, the king didn't return until Aragorn came later. But he was holding the king's place while he was gone. And when Jesus used this word steward in his parables, it's interesting, he always uses it in the context of coming judgment. Look at uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 42. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? It's the word steward. Whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk. Then the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. This is his point. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Peter also tells us that every Christian is a steward of God's grace. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Serve faithfully so that God might get glorified. And again, you have both those elements of uh, inconspicuousness of the steward or of the servant and the faithfulness of the steward. And what Paul indicates that God's servants are particularly stewards of is the mysteries of God. What they manage is the mysteries of God, at least here in this text. That is, they are managers, they're stewards of God's revelation. So their job is to both proclaim and to explain God's truth. And of course, this means interpreting it accurately, not abusing it, but cutting it straight. And that's why the the hermeneutics class, the Bible study class that we offer is so important to us as a leadership team, because you, unless you know how to interpret the Bible accurately, you can't be faithful with it. But also, it encompasses understanding how to apply it to our lives as well, how we should obey it. So it's not just understanding it and being able to teach the mysteries of God, but also responding appropriately to it. So obedience to God's truth is part of the stewardship. Consider James 1, verse 22, where he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, again, merely knowing correct doctrine, merely interpreting the Bible accurately is not enough. We need to also live out correct doctrine. As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Notice he highlights, pay close, itself, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, both. Not just teaching, not just your interpretation of the Word of God, but also your own life. Both need to correspond to what God has revealed. So stewarding the mysteries of God means teaching God's truth accurately and then also living in accordance with what it says. And this is why one of the worst condemnations we could receive as Christians is to be called a hypocrite. Because what a hypocrite is, is a person who cares merely about what people see rather than what God sees. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 when he describes the Pharisees. He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And again, this is the word that Jesus particularly uses to describe the Pharisees. Because they, of all people in the Jewish culture, cared about other people's judgments. He says in, verse, in Matthew 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, again, the hypocrites care about what's on the outside, which is why they are so prone to be judgmental. Which is why they're so acutely concerned about what they see. And notice the stark contrast between what God's servants care about and the hypocrites. Again, Paul says, God's servants recognize themselves as under rowers. They don't care about what other people think of them. They don't even want to be seen. They just want to do their job. They just want to be faithful. And stewards, again, they seek to teach and obey God's word, again, not just externally, not so that people would think, oh, there goes a good Christian, but they care about what's going on inwardly as well. The third word Paul uses to describe the aims of a minister is faithful. He says in verse 2, Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. The word faithful is the word, or sorry, the word found is the word eurethe, where we get the word eureka, as in eureka, California. It means to discover something. So what is it that the master will discover when he comes back and he sees what his steward has been doing? What is the master going to care about? His desire is that he, his steward would have done his job. A servant's job is to do his job, to be faithful. And so when it comes to assessing a servant of Christ, 
the primary thing that they're going to be assessed on is, were they faithful? Were they faithful with what they received? So questions you might ask yourself before that time when we will be ultimately assessed by our faithfulness by God. Some questions we can ask ourselves now is, how faithful have you been as an ambassador of Christ? We like to use the the illustration in our church of being domestic missionaries. So if a church, maybe from some other country, had sent you to America to be an ambassador here in this country, to be a missionary in this country, how well would they think you've been faithful with that task? How have you served Christ in your work or schools? In your neighborhoods? Consider also, how have you managed your relationships? Did you take full advantage of the Christian support around you? Or did you seek to live like a hermit and just do it yourself? How do you manage your children? Are you stewarding them to be faithful servants of the kingdom of God? Or to be praised by this world? To be successful, popular, wealthy, intelligent? Or do you want them to be primarily servants of the king? How did you manage your wealth? How faithful have you been with other resources you've been given? We live in a country that we have a multitude of translations. We each probably have access to the Bible, maybe multiple copies. We have Christian music on the radio for free. We have um, Christian bookstores, tons of resources. How much is online that we have access to? We, we have any resource we probably need. How have you responded to the teaching that you've received in your life? Do you listen to grow and then to pass on what you've learned so that other, others too might grow? Or do you just simply listen and walk away? And at this point, somebody might be wondering, well, I didn't sign up to be a servant of God. If I had, I would have become a pastor or a missionary or a nun. But really, this is not an issue of volunteering. God is not requesting that you serve him. He's commanding it. If you are a Christian, well, in fact, even if you're not a Christian, God commands that you would serve him with everything that he has given you. He's not petitioning. He's commanding it. You're commanded to glorify God with your life. We read that earlier in Colossians. And you can choose to disobey that command and live like the Corinthians, virtual unbelievers, people who were living, as he said, as if they didn't have the Holy Spirit. You can, you can choose to live that way. But recognize, in the end, God is not requesting that you serve him. He is commanding it and commanding that you use all that he has given for his glory. Paul recognized this. He, he, we'll get to this later on in 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 9, he says this. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me. Again, same word Jesus used with the Pharisees. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. And what's his point? His point is, he didn't volunteer for it. God told him to go and preach the gospel. And so he's saying, if I don't, woe is me. If we are not faithful to respond to God's commands, woe is us. He's not asking for volunteers. He's commanding us as his servants. And the servant of Christ, of course, recognizes this. They recognize that they're servants and they're stewards. And the greatest longing of their life is that they, in that day, would be found 
faithful. They love that word faithfulness. It guides their life. Secondly, we are to understand the insignificance and limitations of human judgment. Paul says in verse 3, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The, the phrase, but with me, is actually the same phrase Paul uses in Philippians 1.21. We know it well when he says, But for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is, in his assessment, Paul's opinion is, this is all that matters. What he says that other people's assessment of his ministry matters little to him. In fact, it actually says, is of least importance. Put it in the vernacular, it matters diddly to him. What another person thinks of his motives, of his life, of his ministry. He doesn't care. He didn't care at all about another person's assessment. In fact, if he had cared, if he was driven by what other people think, he says in Galatians 1.10, that he would no longer be a servant of Christ. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. When we live... In order to please others, when we speak in order to please others, we are not serving Christ, we're serving them. And again, that doesn't mean we should be offensive and rude and jerks. It's just saying we shouldn't live based upon what anybody thinks, but what he thinks alone. And recognize here, Paul is not defending himself. He's warning them. He's concerned about them. He brings this up not to just say, well, I don't care about what you guys think. And we, we know that because of what he says in verse 6. Because he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written. So he brings this up not just to defend himself and to say, I don't care about what you think. He's concerned about them. He's concerned by the fact that they are trying to make judgments about him and Apollos or Cephas or any other leader. And he's, he's concerned about what's going on in their heart. So he's trying to help them understand, you shouldn't be. All you should be concerned about, Corinthians, is what God thinks. The fact that you think you can judge another servant shows you have a big misunderstanding of the gospel and how it applies to your life. There's something terribly wrong. So what Paul is teaching here is not just about assessing Christian leaders, but it's about assessing Christians in general. He's applied it to their sakes. The word judged is the word anacrino, and it refers to this uh, processing of information. The process of examining a person before you give a verdict, before you pronounce a judgment. And the same word is actually used to describe the Bereans' approach to the Scriptures in Acts 17.11. You know it well. Now these Jews who were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That word examining is the same word, anacrino. They were judging the Scriptures to see if these things were so. Paul also used this word before in chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. So again, Paul isn't concerned about the Corinthians' judgment or the judgment of any human court. And that, that phrase, any human court, literally is, and the day of man. He's not concerned about any day of man. And that's in contrast to the judgment day of the Lord. 
He doesn't care about the day of man. He cares about the coming day of the Lord when God will pronounce judgment and judge everybody's work. And it's for all these reasons, Paul recognizes that men's judgment is just weak and limited in light of God's. Do you remember the story of Hannah and Eli in 1 Samuel? I've been reading 1 Samuel on my just my, my own time in the Word this, this month. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have Hannah who is deeply grieved because she's unable to bear children. And her husband's other spouse does, and she kind of boasts about it and really makes Hannah feel terrible. And so they go to the temple as a family, and Hannah comes to the temple and weeps, and she's pleading with God to have mercy upon her and to provide her a child. And then at that time, Eli, who's the high priest of Israel at the time, sees her weeping and pleading with God. And what does he think is going on? What does he assume is going on with Hannah? He thinks she's drunk. And in fact, that's what he sees. He accuses her of it. And of course, this is a reasonable conclusion. When people get drunk, they can cry if they're emotional people. Or... They can maybe talk to themselves because they don't care about what's going on, maybe. Moreover, apparently this sort of behavior was somewhat normative because we find out later in Samuel that Eli's own sons were taking advantage of women around the temple. And maybe quite likely they were giving them alcohol that they might take advantage of them more easily. And so for Eli, he probably just assumes reasonable conclusion This lady's drunk. But consider how that accusation struck Hannah. His high, this high priest's assessment was far from accurate. She's praying to Yahweh before the temple and the one person whose job it is to intercede for her on behalf of the Lord accuses her of horrific sin. And, of of course, Hannah is a prefigurement of Mary, the mother of Jesus. What was Joseph's assessment of Mary when he found out that she was with child? He was ready to let go of her. Was it reasonable for him to think that she'd been messing around? Yeah, it was. But was it true? No. What was people's assessment of Christ's ministry in Isaiah 53? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It says later on that we, we considered him stricken by God and afflicted. But he was struck for our transgressions. It was for our iniquities that he looked so Horrific on the cross. And on the cross, everyone thought he's getting what he deserved. But in fact, he was getting what they deserved. So that they wouldn't have to face it. So consider how the Bible assesses human assessment. Well, the Bible tends to suggest that human assessments are largely wrong. The Philistines didn't think that David was going to be able to conquer them. They were wrong. The Canaanites didn't think that Jericho would fall just by people marching around it. They were wrong. God loves to work this way. He works in ways that humans don't expect. Our 
judgments are limited and often wrong. And it's because of this, Paul says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. See, he recognizes that even his own assessment of his own life is prone to fault. He can't know even about his own heart. His conscience is clean, but it doesn't justify him. And that is, just because he thinks he's being faithful doesn't mean he actually is. I mean, how many times have we looked back in our life and realized, gosh, I really wasn't being driven to honor God. I was just wanting to impress my friends. So Paul doesn't even judge himself. So it begs this question, does this mean that Christians are just to turn off their critical faculties after they've been saved? That we are just stopped, we're to stop thinking critically about what we see in other people's lives? Well, obviously not. We still need to think critically, but at the same time, we need to recognize how severely limited our judgments are. Notice that Paul in this letter, this letter, 1 Corinthians itself, he's writing a critique of the church. He's being critical of the church. But what he critiques them of are things that can be witnessed, things that he's heard, things that can be verified. He's not making assumptions. They're things that can be witnessed. Likewise, what we are able to assess, and in fact, what we're called to assess, are two things. What we're called to assess essentially are two things. Doctrinal error. We're like the Bereans, supposed to search, the, examine the scriptures, judge the scriptures. Is what this person's saying, does it line up with what the Bible actually says? Is this consistent with scripture? So we, we're called to do that. Secondly, objective sin. The Bible makes it clear what is sin and what is not. And so if we see sin, we need to call it sin. In fact, for us to not call sin sin is wrong. That would be living to please others rather than God. We would not be faithful stewards. Jesus told his followers on the Sermon on the Mount that they are to judge a tree by its fruits. We're called to judge. But notice it's by fruit, not by the sap. It's what you can see externally. Clear objective sin. We can and should call sin evil. And secondly, is what, being, is, what is being said faithful to the word of God? Incidentally, that's why God's word was written down. So that we could have we could know what God's word says and objectively assess it. But recognize that the word of God is ultimately the one making these judgments. It's not even us. Think about it. We're still not the ones making the judgments. If a person's in sin and we say what you're doing is wrong, we're not making that judgment. We're just telling them what the Bible says. Likewise, if a person's teaching something that's wrong and we show them what you're teaching isn't in line with the Word of God, it's the Word of God making the judgment. It's not us. Yes, we're still thinking critically, but it's God ultimately that makes that judgment. We are just the vehicle. We're merely stewarding what it says. And this is why Paul recognizes that God alone is able to faithfully judge. And therefore, God's assessment of his life and ministry is all that matters to him. Thirdly, recognize that only God can faithfully judge our ministry. Notice verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So what's Paul's conclusion? Don't pass judgment. Since true faithfulness is something only the Lord can judge. 
It's arrogant to assume that we can. The only assessments we could make of others are you know, outside of, again, objective sin or doctrinal error are judgments that would be based upon superficial and fallible observations to the extent that we can't even judge ourselves. The best judgments we can make would only be based upon superficial observations. Why would we trust in that? We can't judge ourselves. So to make such assessments is really, it's really to forget fundamental truths of the gospel. That God's judgment is all that matters. Moreover, to seek the, to assess other servants really is to embrace worldly thinking and worldly priorities. Because if we're not judging them based upon what the word of God says about them, What's the criteria we're using for judgment? If it's not the word of God, what is it? Worldly thinking and worldly priorities. What we think matters, what the culture think matters. So how can, how can you be doing that assessment if it's not on human standards, temporary things? The truly wise Christian cares about people's faithfulness. They do care about people's faithfulness. I care whether you understand the word of God rightly and whether you're living the word of God out, whether you're applying it to your life. In fact, and you should care that about me. If you don't care about how I'm living the word of God, something's wrong. So we should care about one another. Well, at the same time, we need to recognize how limited we are in making a faithful assessment. Note that Paul tells us when we can start to assess people's ministries. It's when the Lord returns. You can judge people all you want when the Lord returns. Because at that point, you will have everything you need to make that assessment. Because God will have already made it. After the Lord gives his assessment, then we can accurately appraise one another's faithfulness. But not until then. Again, this is a command that's given. We can't assess other people's lives and faithfulness until God does. And then Paul presents two reasons why we're incapable of passing judgment. And also why God's judgment's all that matters. First of all, we don't see everything. But God does. And secondly, we don't understand people's motives and intentions but god does and again those are the things that factor into faithfulness so if we can't see those things how could we assess faithfulness we can't we can't paul says he will bring to light things now hidden in darkness so again this refers to things only god can see things that are hidden we don't see what people do when they're alone. We don't see their secret sins. We don't know how they actually spend their time. If they truly are hardworking. We don't know who truly helps the church grow. And who actually hurts it. We don't know who prays and fasts on their own. We can guess, but only the Lord knows for sure. And eventually we will know. Eventually we will know, as Jesus told his disciples. Consider Luke 12, 1 through 3. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So Jesus' point here is that the desire to receive the praise of man is what breeds hypocrisy. That is, 
it, this, this desire to look good on the outside rather than be faithful on the inside. So Jesus tells his disciples that all that matters is what's going on on the inside. I mean, I guess actions matter too. But the motives are highly important. And we will be assessed by our motives and by the things that at this point remain hidden. Now take comfort, we will not be condemned by those things that are hidden. If we're in Christ, you will be forgiven those things that are sinful. But that does not mean that what we have done in secret won't be revealed. In fact, it seems to indicate that that's exactly what will will be revealed. So you don't have to worry about the condemnation that comes from Christ or that comes from God in that judgment because you won't be condemned. But that doesn't mean that the whole world will not know what you've actually done. So God will bring things to light that no one else knows and he will even expose the purpose of the hearts. The word refers to plans and intentions and motives. Again, it's the reasons behind our actions. So again, it's not just our actions and our words that are going to be assessed. I mean, Jesus says we're going to have to give an account for every word on that day. Every word. But our intentions also, the intentions of our hearts will be assessed. Notice how this, the aim of this assessment though, is not condemnation, it's commendation. Don't miss this. This should not be intimidating to you. It should be very encouraging to you. The aim of this assessment is commendation. So that each one will receive his commendation, his praise from God. In other words, this is about justice. That every Christian in that day will receive what they deserve. You won't have people who have been hypocrites their whole life and have been praised by others for their faithfulness who really weren't. In that day, we'll really see who was sincere. And likewise, those people who were overlooked and never heard of, and yet remained faithful, will be rewarded. Nobody will receive honor that they did not earn. And everybody that does receive honor will be honored. And those who are slandered, And those who are misunderstood will be vindicated. And that's why we can't wait for the judgment day. We look forward to it. We will be made vindicated. People will assess us rightly. They'll see us as we truly are. Justice will be done. If you travel to the country of Wales, you might come across a, a town called Beth Gellert. Beth Gellert is a small town in North Wales. And in the thir- 13th century, there was a prince in Beth Gellert named Llewellyn, who was the prince of that area. And one day, Llewellyn went hunting without his faithful dog, Gellert. He was his faithful hunting dog. And he always accompanied him on all these trips that he'd go hunting. And at this time, Gellert was absent. And he didn't know where he was. So he went hunting without them. And on Llewellyn's return, the truant dog ran up to him and joyfully sprang to meet his master. But he was covered and smeared with blood. And the prince, alarmed, hastened to find his son, and he discovered that his son's cot was empty. And the bedclothes and the floor were covered with blood. And the frantic father plunged his sword into the hound's side, thinking that he had killed his heir. And the dog's dying yell was answered by a child's cry. And Llewellyn searched 
and he discovered his boy unharmed. But nearby lay the body of a mighty wolf, which Gellert had slain. The prince, filled with remorse, is said never to have smiled again. And he buried Gellert there. And that town is called Beth Gellert, which means the tomb of Gellert. And we hear this story and think, if only he would have been more patient to pass judgment upon his faithful hound. But how much more should we be patient to pass judgment upon those fellow image bearers and those people who are possessed of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Lord, it does give us joy to know that all wrongs will be made right. And that we will pass through the fires of your assessment. And that all the wood, hay, and stubble will be burnt up. And all the gold, silver, and precious jewels will be proven true. And Lord, we want to be a people who are not hypocrites. Who look forward to that day. In fact, that we would be so longing for that day. So so genuinely faithful. That... When we're slandered, when we're misunderstood as Hannah and Mary and Christ himself, that we wouldn't lose heart. Because we know that it's not what people see now that matters. It's what you see. And God, that this, the fear of your judgment is what would guide us when we're alone, when we're tempted to sin. Lord, that we'd be so consumed with recognizing that that day's coming, that it would guard us from every temptation. In particular, the temptation to arrogantly assume that we can judge another servant's faithfulness. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.